K.S. Garner, and you're listening to the Solo Never Podcast. Today, I'll be speaking with the craftsman behind the Shadow Bindery, Elizabeth McHugh, here to discuss her specialties in book binding and book repairs. Welcome, Liz. Thank you. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Well, thank you for reaching out to me. And I believe you said we met at Baltimore Comic Con, right? Yeah. So how yeah, was that for you? It was, it was good. It was my first um, experience as a vendor mm-hmm. with the Bindery, so um, I had actually so I graduated from bookbinding school in 2019 and like I was supposed to start in 2020 and obviously that didn't happen because of the pandemic so this is like the first time I got out there I was really excited about it so they have like a school for this I didn't know that yeah so there's two full-time programs left in the country um the one that I went to is in North Bennett Street School it's in Boston uh there's another one in Telluride uh Colorado uh it's called the American book binding school don't quote me on that I think that's it but I can't remember the full title um so yeah there are a couple of full-time programs and then there's smaller schools that offer like weekend workshops and or week-long workshops you can definitely find them everywhere there's some online uh, programs you can get they'll send you a book binding kit you know if you want to sort of get into it and get started so there are options Okay, cool. We'll get more into what inspired you, I guess, to sh- start the Shadow Bindery mm-hmm. and getting into book binding. But outside my introduction, who is Elizabeth McHugh in her own words? Um, I'm like an epic nerd. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I know that's like sort of broad, but um, not only with the book binding, uh, I got into it, you know, because of history um, and because I like I'm an artist, but um, in terms of like you know the shadow boundary doing this it really is because i love like the nerd culture and that you know comes with the comic books and graphic novels and cosplay like manga like i like it all so um this is sort of how i engage with it you know what i mean uh-huh so i guess what inspired the shadow boundary i guess outside of being a nerd i mean it goes along with being an, a nerd of everything so like what inspired all of this for you to start it um, so originally when I, when I went into school, you know, my plan was to uh, eventually go into a master's program in conservation, art conservation, with a focus in books. And that really are, these are the people that fix up Gutenberg's library, uh, Bible, and, and they, they fix up Shakespeare's first portfolio. Like they take the historical documents, like, like in a national treasure, you know, when he steals the, the, it, the declaration of independence you know mm-hmm. he steals it from the conservation room and that's where they would repair it um so i was originally like that was the big plan um and i went to north bennett uh, street school sort of as an intermer- intermediary educational step towards that because they teach book repair and they teach some conservation techniques um and i realized it wasn't for me <laughs> i was like oh crap this is not not for me. Um, conservationists spend a lot of time uh, repairing paper and uh, a lot of the um, attitude or the prevailing philosophy in conservation is not to um, change the object that you're working on because uh, because of historical you know reasons. Like you want to preserve it. That is like the goal, right? But for me, when I see something that's broken or needs repair like I want to restore it like I want to change it I want to bring it back to the way it looked and I I, like I want to go all in so 
it's sort of like I, I had to struggle with that. And at that point it was like, okay, well then what do you do? You're in this bookbinding program for two years. What are you going to do with it? Um, and so we went through this uh, part of the curriculum where we learned to, you know, take books and sort of remake them. And it sort of really is like cosplay for books. Like you take these books and you can um, totally change the cover design and you can change the edging. You can do all these really cool things. And it just clicked. And I was like, this is what I want to do. Like, I want to make these books spectacular. You know, I want, I want your version of Harry Potter to look like it came from Hogwarts, you know, and like, that was like what excited me. And um, so that's, that's sort of where it started. So I guess, can you, I guess, elaborate on your creative process as a book binder? Is that, would that be correct? A book binder or a book repair person? Like how does someone get in contact <laughs> with you if they wanted a book repaired or bound? Um, so in terms of like contact, like I have, you know, like a Facebook page and Instagram, um, my email is listed. It's the shadow bindery at gmail.com. Um, so like one word, um, and they can, you know, reach out through social media or through my email. That's not an issue. Um, but in terms of like process, so it depends on whether it's like a repair or, um, if I'm doing like a commission, um, a lot of people, because they don't because this is not uh, something that people are familiar with, you know what I mean? It, it is sort of like this lost art. Um, they don't even know their options. And so a lot of the initial contact is finding out like what they want, what they, what they have seen and trying to like get an idea of what they really want their book to look like at the end. Um, when I, so last summer I got a commission from, um, a family that they had like a children's book and they really just wanted it restored. The book had uh, fallen apart, you know, it was a kid's book and uh, they had used tape to sort of tape the, the pages back in They were falling out. It was, it was very sad looking. Um, and the covers had started coming off, you know? And so that really, like I dismembered the book completely. I had to clean each page individually. I had to put them all back together. And then I had to rebuild the spine of that book. Um, and it was a great piece. It was like a lot of fun to do. It came out really good. They were super happy. You know, that's part of their family history. Um, so that was like a really cool project for me. Um, this past summer, I had uh, a woman that I've done a couple of jobs for. She sent me her signed copy of uh, The Name of the Wind by um, Ruthfuss, Patrick Ruthfuss. Oh. And uh, the spine had broke. And the book wasn't in bad shape, but like the spine had broke. And so she was like, well, since it's broken, you're gonna, you know, fix it anyway. Can you give me a new cover? And so I did, I built her a new cover um, that had this really beautiful Italian book cloth and um, on the spine, it was all black. And then this really cool paper, you know, this decorative paper that had um, this wind design. And it just sort of, you know, it made sense for that book. Um, so she was really happy and I was really happy. and. Um, and that's like, that's a really, it's like sort of the best part of my job when, you know, I can, I can finish these things and hand them back and people are like, oh my God, this is amazing. Uh -huh. <laughs> but if, if we're talking about like, um, like, so I do a bunch of, I have an Etsy shop as well. Yeah. And I'll just do, you know, stuff like the stuff that I brought to Baltimore Comic-Con. And um, I have some here behind me. I have examples. I actually, I just finished... Batman and Wonder Woman. And you know, like this is a uh, full leather 
binding. Um, it's custom made, obviously. And I built the cover. Um, I did all the uh, marble papers on the inside. So these are all like unique and hand done. Um, and this will last a couple hundred years. You know yes. what I mean? Like, yeah. So how do you, I guess, build a new a new cover? Like, how does how does that work? Um, so you know, like with any sort of project, I'll start with uh, an initial design, and that I'll sketch it out. You know, that could depend on on what we're talking about. You know, if we're talking about Batman, um, obviously I'm going to have the Batman logo in there, and and this is um, called Arkham City. That's the you know the graphic novel. So I wanted the city skyline in there. Um, and once I sort of have an idea of what uh, I'm going to do, I'll acquire all the materials. So for this, I actually bought this, um, the leather on it is sheepskin, but I bought it specifically because it was already pre-distressed, you know, so it sort of had that really nice texture to it. Um, and like those choices you really have to make, at least for bookbinding, most of them you have to make up front um, because a lot of work that goes into the book goes into it before you ever put the cover on so um if you decide to decorate the edges of the book so something that's becoming really popular is foredge painting have you heard of this no you know? okay so it, it's easier on um regular novels because they're just a bit thicker you know like there's just more real estate to work with but people will take a book they'll clamp the, the crap out of it they'll clamp it really hard and they'll paint a scene of the book on the three available edges that you have of the pages um so oh, for is that what okay okay yeah I, when you describe it i know what you're talking about yeah 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 you see it right it's, it's it's gaining a lot of popularity and this is like a like an ancient technique um and again something you could take classes in which is pretty cool um but like there are other ways to decorate the edge so you've seen bibles have been gilded you know or they'll have that red that red decoration yeah um but you can sort of put any color you want on it you know you could put black green but it doesn't matter you could sprinkle it which is like sort of a traditional technique but you have to for me i have to make that decision uh before i even start really with the binding because i need to decorate the edge before i put the cover on because mm -hmm. uh, i don't want any of the paint to get on the on the the cover itself so i'll bring in the book i'll i'll do a sketch i'll strip it of its original cover um, and for me, uh, you know, I'll go through all my planning stages, I'll acquire the materials, and then I'll really sort of get into it. Um, I reline all the books that I have with a better spine lining. Mm -hmm. Most of the books are uh, glued, like that's how they were bound commercially. Um, sometimes that glue has to be stripped out. Sometimes it's really crappy glue. Um, sometimes I'll leave it. It depends on the book, you know, and sort of it's a case by case situation. Um, if it's an older book, like a really old book, that glue typically is a animal product and it can be like removed. Um, and you sort of want to remove it because it becomes a really smelly, but also really like, um, it'll crack and just sort of like fall off. It's kind of really gross. Uh -huh. But obviously, like, you know, we are talking about a book and the spine is is one of the most important pieces. You want that uh, structurally sound. So um, all the books that come through, regardless of their stage or their age, I will go in and I'll reline the spine and make sure that is stable before sort of proceeding. Um, and then I usually add the end papers, which are those decorative papers 
right on the inside that attach to the covers. And on a lot of modern books, like it's not something that people pay attention to. Usually it's blank. It's like a white page, you know, sometimes it'll be like a different color. Um, but like in traditional book binding, it was sort of like a, like an art statement. And so that's why like, I, I like to make it an art statement, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then like, you know, once that's done, uh, I'll start building the cover. Uh, there, there are two ways, sort of two basic ways to do it. You can attach the boards on the book and then like start covering it in leather and cover it in paper and doing it with the text block in there. And that's like sort of risky because, you know, you can get glue in there. You can like, there are things that could happen or, um, or you could build the cover off the book. And that's definitely for beginners. Like that's definitely safer. Um, And sometimes that's easier. Um, It just depends on the situation. And like, again, the, the materials that you're working with yeah so i see like you just said you mentioned you have the batman one that you built and then there's a wonder woman one as well um how do you i guess the commissioning i guess people commissioning for that type of work with trademark like stuff so how does that work in in a way you have obviously people know the batman symbol people know wonder woman symbol and stuff like that so are there legal issues with people commissioning for stuff like that? Like, how does that work? Um, I'm not sure. I've never run into it. Uh For me, I'm not taking credit for creating those symbols. Uh And I'm not certainly taking any credit for what's inside the book. Like the content of the book is obviously uh, legally owned by those creators, those illustrators. And in all like my product descriptions, I will cite that because but again, I'm not taking credit for that. Mm. I am taking credit for the creation of like the binding. Um, and so for it's like, um, it's like the outside covering. Um, it's sort of like, you know, taking a, a shoe, like a kid or a, um, like a basketball shoe and, and painting on it on Etsy. You're not saying that you built the shoe. That's not what you Everybody knows it's a kid or whatever it is, you know, uh-huh. um, you're saying that you did the design on top of it um and so like for for me for the wonder woman like i you know i bought this logo obviously this is not something that i manufactured and um you can see in in my process on my instagram because i i document all that like i said i I wanted this to look like the trademarked version of you know of uh dc Mm -hmm. no um so you know it's just almost like a an applique that i added yeah does that make sense? Yeah. Um, so yeah, that's how I handle it. Cool. Well, what is the most dis- difficult aspect of your craft? Is it the craft itself? Um, is it advertising for it? Is it working with maybe some indecisive, impatient customers? <laughs> you know, customers who want complicated designs but don't want to pay complicated design money or like. In, in uh, experience, what's the most complicated aspect? Right now, it is sort of like the uh, the education of of people. Like even at uh, Baltimore Comic Con, I um, this is not something that you see very often. You know, most bookbinders deal in um, repair and restoration, so they don't really do a lot of like what I do. And um, so a lot like people would just walk by and they didn't realize that like they thought they were journals. A lot of people expected them to be blank. 
And so <laughs> like at the end, I was like, no, they're not like the actual books, I promise. You know, and then people would slow down and be like, oh, that's really interesting. Um, and so it's just sort of just trying to educate people on um, that this is possible, that you can do this. Um, and then sort of the next step is educating them on, on like the price tag, which for a lot of people is shocking. Um, but like, this is like a handcraft and, mm-hmm. and sometimes I'm dealing with gold leaf and or leather, like, especially with inflation, you know, you don't even talk about that, but you know, <laughs> the cost of leather is, is crazy right now. And, um, you know, I can use vegan leather and like, I have like alternatives, but like, if you're going to go out and do this and you know, you're not vegan or whatever, then like, you're, you're going to want real leather. Like that's sort of part of the appeals like that, that old book smell, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so that, that's, that's been really interesting and challenging. Um, what is really exciting, especially for the craft is that, you know, the bookbinding community is, is obviously not, not huge. It's a, it's a pretty specific type of, of book nerd that gets involved. Um, but it is really developing and evolving in, in really fascinating ways. So book artists are, and that's becoming a much bigger thing over the last 10 years. Um, you have like the younger generation have started things like the hashtag, are you book enough? And every year they come out with a list for that year of a theme per month that like internationally book artists around the world engage in. And so they'll, they'll, you know, decide, oh, I'm going to participate this month and whether, whatever that theme is, whether that's spring or fire, like whatever, they'll create, you know, a unique book throughout that month and then post it at the end. And you have thousands of people engaging in that. That's like really cool. Um, There's also the fanfic community has really gotten into it recently, which like for me is really exciting to see because it's similar to what I do, but you know, like they are such a strong community and they've figured out or found out that there's no resources for them to print these fanfic works. You know, these, these, uh, Draco and Hermione is like a really popular, um, fanfic, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Uh, and that's the one I've seen the most of, but not just Harry Potter. I mean, there's, there's a whole bunch of them out there. Um, a friend of mine writes a whole bunch for, um, what is it? Pitch Perfect for uh, oh, yeah. the two female leads, you know what I mean? Yeah. So, but like, there's nobody out there to print them, not only for, you know, copyright issues, you sort of, it, it gets a little um, iffy or gray area, but just like, you know, you're, you're really, your options are to go to um, Staples and get it printed and then like bound like a, like a presentation book. Like nobody wants that. You want a book that you can put on your bookshelf and that looks attractive mm-hmm. because you love this story, you know, like regardless of where it came from or if it's canon, quote unquote, like these people, this is like a big thing for them. Um, and so a lot of them have just gone out and sort of figured out either through workshops or online classes, the basics of bookbinding and they've started doing it themselves. And it is so cool to see like, and and some of the work is really fantastic. And, and I just like, for me, again, it's exciting to see uh, people engaging with it in a different, a new way. Um, uh-huh. so. so I have a two-part question for you now. Um, you have some interesting links on your uh, link tree about book bans and repairs. So yep. what is your take on the recent uh, queer and race book banning in some states' school systems? And what about um 
I guess your take on the books that are like nearly destroyed because of maybe poor upkeep or people have had them for a long time, or maybe some that have been, um, I guess, init- uh, intentionally destroyed for whatever reason. So like, yeah. what is your take on those two? Uh, so book ban- uh, book banning, I think is ridiculous. And, and yeah. offen- for me, it's offensive. Um, I, I personally, I grew up in a very Jewish neighborhood. I'm not Jewish myself, but like, so we learned about the Holocaust very early on. We learned about tolerance. Like these are things that sort of part of my up- uh, upbringing were really important. Um, and, and education and, and being able to read these stories, whether or not you agree with them is sort of you know, your own personal decision, you know what I mean? But like, when it comes to like First Amendment rights, you don't get to tell me or really anybody else what I can and cannot read. Like, that's not, I'm not okay with that. Mm -hmm. And to restrict what kids have access to, um, really like, and for the reasons that they're talking about, it's just absurd. You know, whether you're talking about race or sexuality or whatever, if you're really serious about that, okay, then, then you're going to have to ban the Bible at the end of the day. Uh-huh. The Bible, you have, you know what I mean, rape and incest and burning. And, you know what I mean? Like there's so many topics that they're losing their minds about, but like only if it's dealing with queer representation or only if it's dealing with, you know, uh, critical race theory. And it's just a targeted way for people to make a big stink about things that they think everybody else should be ashamed about and that really drives me crazy um the last year when they started the book banning they you know they banned mouse and they're they're big a lot of them their big controversy over it was they used the the word bitch once in the book and a mouse representation of the author's i don't know if his mother or his grandmother was either like in a bra or like partially naked um i forget like you know the the exact reasoning and that was their like oh we're gonna ban the book for this reason and i'm like really well like that's what you're going with okay okay it just it sort of boggles my mind um they banned uh, a neil gaiman uh, book what is it called um neverwhere several years ago literally because they used the word snogging because a couple was snogging on a park branch which you know means kissing and that was it that was it that's why they banned the book and i just i i find that like ridiculous because again if if you're gonna do that then you're gonna have to ban you know like all the all the other books that you like think are okay like i i just i'm not I remember reading I think it may have been on Twitter uh, maybe a couple of months ago about how one parent complained about um, a graphic novel that their daughter was reading at the school library Um, and the school had to go and take all of the graphic novels out and pretty much vet them and see what else was in here um, in their in their catalog so for however many months this girl, this teenage girl couldn't rent out or long take any books out of the library. And I think the school library was her only access to books because, you know, a lot of people can't afford to buy new or even used books. And then a public library may be too far away from her house for her to go to because, again, she just probably doesn't have a driver's license. She probably doesn't have money to take the public transit. So for her to have access to the books are at her school library. So you're just, 
limiting and restricting these kids access to books in a place where they're supposed to be learning they're supposed to be getting having access to stuff so if any it it just doesn't make any sense at all so it's just like the book banning that happens what maybe every 20 25 maybe 30 years where they keep doing it and it it didn't work then what makes you think it's going to work now it just keeps coming back up maybe like every other generation you know it's just it's just, I think, just another distraction from what we're supposed to be focusing on. You know? Agreed. Um, you know, and, and in terms of the, the comic book industry, particularly book banning is not new. You know, there's actually a really good um, graphic novel called Teenagers from Mars, which is about um, about them trying to I think they they arrest the main character because he's either reading or selling comic books at his store. And for a long time, I don't know if it's still up, but for a long time, you had the comic book legal fund, which literally was there for people that were being, um, that, that had legal problems because they were either selling or creating comic book art. You know, it uh, honestly, until comic books entered like the movies and the mainstream, um, they really were sort of at the edges of society and like people sort of put them on the same level as like the porn industry and sort of would freak out like comic books are evil, graphic novels are evil, mm-hmm. um, you know, so for a long time, you know, and I'm talking up into like the early 2000s, you know, at least the comic book legal fund was a thing that was there to help people that that were being prosecuted for being creators and exercising their constitutional rights. <laughs> Yeah. And I think you already brought this up because I thought the second question I asked was how do you, I guess, feel about books that are uh, nearly destroyed because of poor upkeep and intentionally destroyed? And you brought up, what was it called? Did they draw and paint on the the three edges? What was that called again? Forage painting. Forage painting. And I didn't know it had a name. So I thought like, oh, these people are like destroying the books. But actually it's a technique I didn't know that yeah but um how do you feel about people who write in their books <laughs> this is like a like a long debate about and dog earring that's like a, another big one that people sort of get very very uh, hype about um so for me writing in a book I I kind of I I like it I I don't do it myself really but I like seeing them because I for me, it speaks to the history of the book and that this has passed through a couple of different people and that they have loved this book or really sort of engaged with it enough that they're going to leave their mark. Same with like um, book plates, you know, like you'll see the stickers. This was the library of, you know, like yeah. that stuff I like. Oh, uh, so yeah, you have. I was like, I hope, she, I hope she doesn't get mad about <laughs> it because I wrote and I had this one book that I was going to review and I read it and I completely forgot to do it. But I just, I don't know if you can tell, but I just wrote like, yeah because I, mean, I remember um in high school English my uh English class she was like it's okay to write your books because um like you said it tells the history of the people that read it before them but then when I because I am a self-published author that's what I was doing at Baltimore Comic Con yeah I remember and um I remember asking a person not there but before um if they wanted me to sign it and he was like I don't really like it when people sign books or write in books I was like oh well you're not gonna like me because I don't <laughs> like books. So. 
Um, well, and it's really like, you know, people are going to like hear this, but it really is sort of wrapped up in the history of books. Um, monks would take old manuscripts that were falling apart and they would literally cut them up and use them to line new books. They would line spines with it. So um, there have been times where, you know, museums have taken a book apart to repair it and found intact you know pages of a completely different manuscript inside that might have been more important historically but like the monks didn't know or care wow. um recently somebody this professor found out that he's a professor in like science and he found out that he has sir isaac newton's personal copy of sir isaac newton's book optics like, and he didn't know he bought it, you know, off an auction or whatever. And then when he realized it, he went through and he saw Sir Isaac Newton's signature and like notes. Like, that's cool, you know what I mean? But yeah. you won't know those things and unless people write in the book. So I'm a proponent. I, I think it's cool. Um, but yeah, I know a lot of people get upset about it. So uh-huh. Well, throughout the whole process of you doing your book binding, book repair, you know, um, doing a commission for someone or whatever it may be. Um, do you, or did you ever at some point get overwhelmed with it all? Um, did it, or does it ever become too much? And how you, how do you typically manage your mental well-being when it does? Um, yeah, sure. I mean, like there are times, so, you know, book binding, can be like a lengthy process you know there are times when you're letting glue cure like overnight so like that's 12 hours you know and um if if there are other things going on not only you're like personally but um you know with the clients they have deadlines they have due dates they have birthday gifts like whatever it is um you, you want to deliver but you also you know want to make sure that the book is done correctly um and I think most bookbinders have multiple projects on their bench at any given moment. Like there's usually a stack of books in some, you know, form or another. Um, and so, uh, you know, for us, it's a lot of, a lot of it is our own time management. Um, but um, honestly, for me, the bookbinding is my mental health, like sort of self-care. Mm -hmm. um, I just personality wise, like I sort of run at a million miles an hour and I'm like a very busy person and that I'm typically very happy that way. But, you know, when my life gets overwhelming, I go back to my bench. That's where like my, okay, you have to slow down here and you have to take a break and you have to go slow because it's not going to work otherwise. Um, and so bookbinding for me is, is my mental self-care. And I really, um, there's something really soothing in it. Um, whether that's like folding pages or sewing or, or gluing things or designing, like whatever sort of part of the process on that, like I find it, um, for the most part, like really restful. Um, mm -hmm. and I, I really like it. So, yeah. so my question for you, Liz, is, um, what advice would you offer to other, I guess, crafts people? It can be just crafts in general. It can be someone who wants to get into um, book binding, book repairs, maybe even art conservation, whatever it may be. So like, just what advice would you offer to someone that you wish someone would have told you when you first started? Um, well, the first thing that like, I do wanna like say to anybody interested there, there are like a million resources um, for book binding. There is a, it, it, regardless of sort of like the country you're in, 
Um, there are like professional uh, trade organizations in the United States, it's the Guild of Book Workers. Uh, there's one in Canada, Society of Book Workers. In uh, Great Britain, the Society of Book Binders. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are, there are strong uh, like book binding you know, communities like all over the place. There's, you know, Belgium and Japan and um, there's one in Russia, um, there's New Zealand and Australia. Like you'll, you'll find us sort of everywhere, we're everywhere. Um, and, and with the web, it's really nice because you can sort of reach out across, you know, international lines and ask questions and, and find tools or find uh, materials that are otherwise sort of difficult to find. Um, so, uh, but the, the big thing for me about the bookbinding community is honestly like how welcoming and excited they are. Like mm-hmm. you have a book question and they're like, yes, come talk to us. <laughs> like we are here. Um, and there's sort of like, there was for a while a big generational gap. So a, a, a lot of bookbinders are, are are sort of very much in their, the late stages of their career. Like they've been doing this for like 40, 50 years. And there, there's like a sort of, a, again, a gap. So like a lot of the newer bookbinders have only been doing this for like, five to 10, you know what I mean? Um, and I think that sort of when that sort of the newer generation came in, the older generation was just like, hey, thank God, you know, but also, um, you know, these people are, their biggest interests are about books and paper and leather. And like, they really just want to talk to you about it. They will happily answer questions. They're extremely welcoming. They're extremely interesting. They have the craziest stories. Um, and they have like the craziest tools. Like they, they are using tools that are a hundred years old, you know, and that that doesn't break. And if they can't find the tool, they will learn to make it, or they will steal it from another industry, and then they'll show you how to make it yourself. Um, I, in school, I learned how to make my own knives, you know, and uh, I learned how to make my own uh, finishing tools to make the the really crazy fancy gold work, you know. Mm-hmm. Like we learned those skills. Um, and then I, I sent pictures back to my friends and they're like, so you, you learned to make shanks and, and <laughs> I was like, little, um, but yeah, like these people are just, um, they're passionate and they're excited to share their passion. And I, I, I don't think I've ever had really had a bad experience, you know, in the community. Uh-huh. So, yeah. Well, I kind of learned how to make my own shank too when I was in college. But like, <laughs> that's a different story. That's a different story. Um well, well as you were talking, um talking about how like people have been doing this for a long time in a generation gap and then like you know they're dealing with materials that have been around for like hundreds of years, right? Um can book binding be done by a machine or can it only really be done by hand? Oh no, absolutely it can be done by, by machine. And okay. um and if and if you look at the history like of book binding, so you, you know, you'll see sort of like it it aligns with like you know advances in the industry. Um a lot of hard hardcover books that you buy today are mm-hmm. machine sewn and then their spine is glued and then you know the covers are put on or whatever. Um graphic novels and manga typically are um they're not sewn at all, they're sort of chopped at the spine. Um, and then put through a machine that puts like a really thick layer of glue on them. And that's sort of how they're assembled. Um, so yeah, like most books today are are definitely not hand bound. Um, but like really the difference is that 
like as with most like modern things they're they're because they're assembled this way they're not built to last mm-hmm. you know and um and that goes from like the paper quality up to like the sewing and the and the glues like some of the the glues that they use are so acidic it will literally over time eat the paper you know that's just um it's the cheapest way of doing things so you know when you have book binders taking these books um and doing repairs and like one of the reasons like I'll stabilize a spine or or when I make a cover like like almost all of my products that I use are like acid free you know for the purpose of like this like I want this to last for you you know what I mean you're, mm-hmm. you're paying money for it like I want it to to be in your family for a while um and so yeah so that's like a big difference between you know like sort of the industrial machine and and uh local bookbinders yeah yeah because when you were when you were talking and describing it to me and that 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 gap I was like oh um it must be just a lot of people just it, it might have been like a dying art or craft in a way and I was wondering oh can it only be done by hand is it better to have it by hand what you just said it lasts longer when it's done by hand because of the materials that are used um and I guess because it being uh, a lot of books being produced it's easier to have it done by a machine but like you said it lasts longer when um, it's done by hand and um I remember learning I think it was like on TikTok of all places that <laughs> um crocheting can only be done by hand because of a uh, machine can't repeat the pattern of something yeah. so I was thinking oh there's something that must be better about um, it being done by hand versus it being done by machine. And like you said, it, the types of materials that are used, it lasts a lot longer. So if anybody's looking out there to have a book repaired or bound, there you go. It lasts longer. It may be more money, but it lasts longer. So you don't have to worry about going back and getting it redone. Yeah. And most people come to bookbinders now, they're they're coming with like their sentimental projects. So they're coming mm-hmm. with their family bi- bi- Bibles and their their grandma's cookbook that you know has been falling apart um and their their kids books and that that kind of thing which is wonderful like you know most of them can be repaired absolutely um but uh I guess like the the big part of my business is like you can come to me with your favorite book and you can come to me with your your fan favorite like this is this is your thing and I'm gonna make it look awesome for you you know and that's that's what I want to do I I like I'm a fan too. So like, I want to, I want to help you with that. And that's what makes me excited about the Mm -hmm. art. So. Well, is there anything that you want to touch on about the shadow bindery as a whole that I may have missed or anything else about your Etsy shop that you mentioned or anything else? Um, I'm going to be at the Philadelphia, um, fan expo this upcoming June. So I'm trying to get out to a couple more, um, comic cons this year that's that's the first one i'm going to go to so if you're there come see me i'll be an artist alley um but yeah like if you have any questions like even if you're just curious like i said i i this is my thing so i'm happy to talk to people about it and um and uh yeah reach out i'm I'm here well do you typically do a big cons or do you do smaller um things because i've learned um to do smaller stuff like Baltimore Comic Con was like three fifty for that whole weekend for that table, and it was harder to make my money back because um, of how much the table cost and then how much the books I was selling. You know, I'm not a really big vendor, and that was my first time doing a big Comic Con. 
but then I started doing smaller stuff um they're like further out in Maryland they may be in the middle of nowhere in Maryland you know Glen Burning Laurel whatever it may be and I was actually making more money I mean the table wasn't as expensive but you'd be surprised how you know when you go to these places in the middle of nowhere that there are people there that are interested in your work and are willing to pay the money like even in cash because they don't really have stuff like that out there like they would in the city yeah. And I've actually talked to a bunch of vendors and they've like sort of said the same thing to me, especially for like Artist Alley um, mm-hmm. and indie authors, you know, like they're heading to the smaller cons because they're getting a better return. Um, and also like the art festivals and like the fall festivals, that kind of thing. Um, like, like you, this is like sort of my first go around. So I'm sort of still exploring and trying to get into see where I'm going to make my money. But um, for sure, I, I've, I've, found that like longer cons or the bigger cons because people say and they think like oh I'll come back in like a couple of days and then they spend their money elsewhere you know what I mean yeah. which I, I get there's a lot of cool stuff out there um but the smaller cons like it's either one day or maybe two like it's either get it now or you're not going to get it at all um and people will you know sort of make that impulse buy a little bit faster or they'll they're they have that money and they're like okay I want this now mm-hmm. um, so yes it's like you it's something I'm starting to figure out and trying to try to navigate yeah yeah and I've also been telling people um I don't mean to make this about myself no not at all (laughs) I've also been telling people to kind of stay um or explore their local network with stuff so um well locally to me is different from local to someone who's from like Idaho someone told me that they're like oh I'm from Idaho and local stuff is you know, what's here and then the next town over is like an hour away. Whereas some here in Baltimore City, you know, you're here in the city and there's a lot of people and then you can go out to the county, which is like maybe depending on where you live, it can be like 15, 20 minutes away. And then Glen Burnie is like 45 minutes away. I went to Ocean City, Maryland, which is like, I think two hours away is really like down the road from Delaware. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a lot of different places and that you can go to here locally Whereas in Idaho, like she said, the next town is an hour away over. And I was just telling her, you know, you know somebody, you may not know them yet or realize that you do, but they've been to the next town over an hour away and they know how it works. You just kind of have to, like I said, explore and ask around. And that may mean that you have to, I know a lot of us introverts are really scared to do this, but you have to, (laughs) you know, um, initiate conversation and introduce yourself and put yourself out there and really just ask the questions like hey have you been here hey how long have you been doing this can you give me some advice or whatever it may be and don't be afraid that oh they'll be mean or an asshole to me or anything like that it's like well if they're an asshole to you they're just an asshole I don't then you have to move on to somebody else you just have to learn how to deal with it yeah yeah no and honestly I I don't know about your experience but like I found the artist alley people to be really awesome Mm -hmm. and um there's a couple uh, really great groups like on Facebook that are like artist alley uh, specific um, or even like indie authors um, that like you know these people will join the group and they sort of exchange information and like um, you know I've gone on the group and asked questions I've seen other people ask questions that I was like oh crap I didn't know that like good to know uh-huh. and yeah it's sort of like this really great uh, opportunity to network and, and sort of learn ahead of time. And, and there was a couple of things that like I learned on that group, like, you know, you wouldn't even think about it, but like phone charger, like you're there for like 12 hours a day or whatever, three days in a row, your phone's going to die. <laughs> you know what I mean? And 
And I would never have thought about that if they hadn't pointed that. I'm like, oh crap, I gotta make sure that like I have some sort of, you know, phone charger that I can carry with me. Like, okay. Um, so yeah, you're right. Like it's it's really important to sort of network and and find your people and um and reach out to these groups that they they really are are a great resource. Mm-hmm. And if you're thinking about coming back to Baltimore Comic Con, I was telling people parking, you can actually park at the Oriole Stadium, which is at the top of the block. You can park there for free. Actually. Oh wow. Um, not on Friday because that's it's during the work week, but on Saturday and Sunday, as long as they're not a game that's there or an event like a marathon, anything like that, you can park there for free. Yeah, so, I got I got an Airbnb specifically with parking because I was like worried about it, and mm-hmm. and then I ended up like walking, you know, to the con, and and that was fine for me. But um, yeah, I was worried about parking. I was like, oh, I'm just gonna make sure that this is included. <laughs> yeah, they had a deal included. I guess the um people the organizers had a deal with the one at the uh b and o railroad museum up the road but i was like that's too far i can just park at the stadium which i did yeah. and just walk straight down like two maybe two blocks i'm not sure yeah, yeah but it's it's actually free so i don't know where the philadelphia convention is going to be at but it's in it, the convention center and which mm-hmm. is where philly is literally mm-hmm. across the street from one of the major train stops so whether uh-huh. you're sort of getting a hotel in the city which is a pretty walkable city or if you you know, decide to stay outside of the city in the suburbs like you literally just take the train in and you hop off at that stop and you walk across the street or you know there's depending on you know which line you're on you, you it'll come up underneath um so yeah like for philly it's it's right there and um mm-hmm. really accessible which is nice okay cool yeah all right um I kind of just took this away from you. Is there anything else that you wanted to, to discuss before um, um, before we end, Liz? I don't think so. Uh, no, this has been a lot of fun. Okay, cool. Um, well, all right. Um, again, I want to thank the craftsman behind the Shadow Bindery, Elizabeth McHugh, uh, for joining us here today to discuss her specialties in book binding and book repairs. All of Liz's socials and link tree will be listed in this episode's details for those who are interested in her work and reading some of the articles she's posted that um, I mentioned earlier. Again, I'm K.S. Garner, and you've been listening to the Solo Nervous Podcast. Thank you. Thanks. <laughs>